Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening. Welcome to the program. I am pleased that award-winning poet Bill Cushing is with me again. His work has appeared in journals, anthologies, and online publications. Additionally, he has published four poetry collections. Bill is returning to the podcast site to discuss his latest book, Just a Little Cage of Bone. Welcome back, Bill, to Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio. Yeah, thanks for so so much for putting the welcome mat out for me again. Love it. <laughs> yes, you know, you're one of my favorite people. All oh, right. Thanks. <laughs> Let's begin this poetic journey. You know, you're very prolific. Very prolific. You're always writing. Just a little cage of bone. What inspired it, my friend? Well, in a word, time. I, I just passed my 71st birthday, oh, and I don't think there's no... I, yeah, I don't think there's any greater motivator for most people to know that you're closing in on the end. Okay, so I, okay. I understand that if I want to get things done, I'd best get to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. All right, so that was the inspiration, that you had something else you needed to say. Yep. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's just... Give me a little bit more than that now. <laughs> well, it's the idea so of... Funny. You know, I've I've got a lot of work, and and I'm still obviously still writing and, and yes. you know formulating things, but I need to get them organized and ready to go. Uh, okay. I just don't want to get caught short. I you know, as you know, I started in the whole thing very late in life, and so mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sort of playing catch up here. I can understand. But, uh, well, just a little cage of bone. When I read the book. I didn't understand the title, to be quite honest, and I should have asked you about it. I was like, what is he talking about? What, what does it mean, bud? Well, the title, actually, the title comes from one of my favorite poems by Donald Justice, and his poem is titled Incident in a, in a Rose Garden, and it's a variation on W. Somerset Maugham's Parabell uh, Appointment in Samara, okay. the, the retelling of an ancient Mesopotamian tale about humans encountering and dealing with death personified. And in the justice poem, he depicts death at one point, removing a glove from his right hand and holding it. And this is the quote, holding it in greeting a little cage of bone. Well, I wanted to use that as the title, but when we designed the front cover, the original line didn't fit. If, if, if you remember the, the, the title goes in a vertical on either side yes. of the illustration. Yes. Well, the original line wouldn't fit in a balanced vertical setting. So I added the word just in, in order for the title to fit on either side of the image. But, okay. uh, but, you know, to me, the poem, I mean, it's whole history and everything is reveals how aging and death figure into the, you know, and this is, I think largely figures into the book itself. All right. Well, let's talk about the cover of the book, the skeleton. Yeah. Tell me more about it. Well, originally, I hoped to recreate the image 
uh, depicted in Justice's poem. Mm-hmm. But the artist I wanted to use was unavailable. So I ended up actually buying the image from an online source. Okay, uh, okay. Which is, by the way, I, I will, if anybody's looking, it's, it's called Cam Stock Photo. And they proved very reasonable in price. It was only $8 for the usage rights of that image. Oh, that's really good. Now, I, really I good. will add, it, yeah, it can cost me more if I sell over 500,000 copies. Okay. Uh, I will happily pay that extra fee. So there is a okay. challenge to everyone. <laughs> Buy enough books to force me to pay more money. Well, I will be more than happy. <laughs> but, but no, I, I, they, they were very – they had a wide selection of stuff. And when I saw the price, I was like, oh, this is nothing. You know, $8, that's you know, that's hardly a cup really of coffee these days. Yeah. You know? And by the way, I do sort of want to give a shout out to Paul Gilliland, who is the mm-hmm. driving force behind Southern Arizona Press, um, because he was very open and accommodating, as well as being very quick to act, as you well know, yes. uh, without sacrificing quality in the name of speed. I mean, I, I would really recommend his press to any poets looking for a venue. Um, okay. I, I was amazed with how well it went. Southern Arizona Press. Mm-hmm. All right, very nice. As you think about this book, what are some of the predominant themes that you talk about, that you write about? Well, in many ways, it kind of goes back to my first book. It is about my life, both mm-hmm. personally and peripherally. I mean, history comes into play quite a bit, among other topics. But I think this book is kind of both autobiographical and at the same time observational. In that, yeah, I cover a lot of my own experiences, but I also cover others' experiences, obviously, from my point of view. Okay. So okay. It's, it's, it's a little bit of everything, but mostly my life, I would say. You know, as I read through it, as I thought about your life and the things you've gone through, there's so many different things, man. Many different things, and it was just an incredible read, to be quite honest. Oh, thanks. It really was. I mean, I read a lot of poetry books, collections, and it was nice to read. Well written. (laughs) Very, very nice. Well, everyone, this is what you've been waiting for. (laughs) It's time to hear Bill Cushing read from just a little cage of bones. All right, my friend, you're on. Okay, so I'll actually start with the opening piece, which is virulent evolution. Like most atrocities humanity has seen throughout history, it begins small, subtle, almost imperceptibly. Devious whispers of accusations spread, then grow to screams of protestation. But those aren't enough to quell anger or dissipate dissatisfaction. Sound-sounding slogans become the pebble that bothers, then irritates, as the slight that aggravates grows into a blight that feeds on its host and produces more of its kind, only more pernicious. Thought becomes movement, then a virus, inevitably destructive, vicious, a mindless mob, inexorable until, soon enough, voices turn into action. The thrown brick the broken window or door, the setting of fires. Finally, outrage ushers in fury and hideous death. 
Um, one of the things that this, uh, the second poem is called A Prayer to Reject Sanctuary. And this is actually two of the pieces from this opening set are about my father in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is called A Prayer to Reject Sanctuary. Let me live alive, unnumbed by the sedative of too much comfort, too much security. Let the pain of age and isolation sharpen my senses, hone my soul into a spear tip of exploration, excommunicated from the swaddling of outside help. Keeping children safe presents its own danger. I was battered and bent, dented in a thousand ways, past damage control, past damage altered me. Every scrape and scar, each cut or burn, ordained me into the one I became. And what I'll do is go right to the other one about, and this is very directly about my dad. Uh, it's a, uh, it's called a brief eulogy for an atheist. Death is a part of life, say the living, yet many people will bear burdens to get one extra day. One reason to admire my father a man whose creed rejected even the notion of an afterlife, then turned down a chance to go on since it meant he'd have to exist unable to engage in the company of people. Um, these next two are actually very autobiographical. The first one uh, is actually uh, about, just to explain, when you hear the term pit snipes, uh, pit snipes are what the Navy calls the engineering department, which is I served as an electrician, so I was part of the pit snipes. We're, we're the ones down below, and, and this is what this is about. It's, it's called Fighting Gods and Nature Below the Waterline. Forged from Vulcan's anvil, the pit snipes labor deep in the ship's keel upon iron machines among generators and diesels where pitch and heavy roll throw the crew against hot metal. Invaded by thick heated oil that floods bilges, nostrils flare in futile protest, and they taste acrid grease on dry tongues. They hear every creak and groan of steel as valves grind, reduction gears rattle and grunt, beat back mounting pressure while the screech of whistling steam from boilers pierces the enclave of this clattering and clanking underworld. These are not the ones who take fire. They live in it, containing furnaces while generating enough energy to drive the vessel. Its spinning shaft propels the ship above and pierces the seat of Poseidon's power. And the last one I'll read of this set is... Uh, very autobiographical. And if anybody's listening from my old hometown, they will certainly recognize this guy. This is called First Work. At 10, I sought my first paycheck from Mr. Kunstler, the old man across the street wheezing on a port stoop, laid low by emphysema. I'd hear his body struggle, trying to sing songs he'd sung when young, now chained to heavy tanks to inflate his lungs. Each Saturday, he'd sit behind a roll-top desk, retrieve his ledger to sign the check, I earned dragging their two metal trash cans to the curb three times a week. 
When needed, I cut the grass, shoveled snow from the walk. His signature scrawled and jagged, the only flourish he had left in him. But a half century before, he'd been a warrior, a Basque who'd fought Franco, an armed fury riding horseback through the forests or across mountains that spanned the Spanish border. On days he wasn't hindered by breathlessness, he'd recall those years, invading the plains and sleeping on stone beds, or hiding, huddled around clandestine fires, set after scaling those coastal steps. Once he croaked the words, Ascatisana ita heralda, freedom and country. And in that moment, his face brightened, his back straightened, and he seemed to shed age. Often, my job's done, his wife of 60 years sat with me at their kitchen table. She poured homemade <laughs> lemonade, fed me slices of burnt cheesecake. From our country, she'd say, her aged eyes fixed on her own distant memory. After he died, she tripled my pay to thank me for returning her husband a measure of pride. And that's that. Thank you. Yeah. A wonderful set. Oh, thanks you know, so that, much. <laughs> that particular poem, the last one, made mm-hmm. me think of a question. Who are some of the writers, thinkers, readers, human beings who inspire or inspire you in your writing? Oh, that's, that's a good one because I do have some pieces in here about relatively famous writers and, and personalities. Okay. But I also, I think the ones I take the most pride in are the, are the unknowns. Um, for example, in the, my first book, the poem Clarence, which I believe I read when I was with you about mm-hmm. the old farmer in Iowa who I, I heard about because I dated his, his uh, granddaughter. And then she showed me an article that I said, this guy is fascinating. It's just amazing. Um, and, so a lot of times, even though I will go into famous personalities, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, seeing ordinary people live their lives out and, and just, you know, do what they think is the best thing to do, I, I think is very fascinating. And, and uh, you know, I, I would have to say the first half of my life was very wandering, very unsettled, so... Mm-hmm. I kind of admire people that are able to do that. Well, also, you've lived a full life. You continue to live a full life. You know, so as you think about putting the, the collection together, the selection process, how did you decide which poems to choose? Okay. Well, in general, the poems were chosen mostly based on their readiness for public release and how well they applied, for lack of a better term, to the central idea behind the book. I I didn't put everything in there, but uh, basically it's like, okay, these pieces impress me as being ready to go out into the public eye. And they also, here again, this is written from the point of view of a 70-plus-year-old guy looking back on life, and um, they seem to fit that general, like I say, the central idea that's behind the whole thing. Okay. So what was your strategy then for organizing the poems in the book? Was it sections, chapters? Talk to me. Tell me what's going on. Well, that, it's funny because this is a much more loosely organized book than my earlier ones. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in a formal life, 
I had divided things into specific categories of people, places, and things. The Music Speaks book, of course, was all, I mean, obviously all focused on music. Yes, I remember And then book. the last book, yeah, and then, then the last chapbook I did, This Just In, was a satirical look at the news media. So I created, the poem sort of followed the, the layout of a standard print newspaper where the news is the first section and then, you know, sports is its own section and entertainment. So I sort of, in that book, you know, in the, in the, that's just in, I just kind of, kind of a, a satirical look at media, mm-hmm. but also using a, a media template as, as its formation. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, obviously, music still appears in this volume. That's a big part of my life. But I yes. also divert into sports, especially baseball, since I am such a big fan of that sport. But much of this deals with my youth, my family, and sort of an overview of world history mm-hmm. that I've either lived through or uh, you know read about. That's sort of, because I am a history buff. That that also figures into it. But yeah, mm-hmm. I would say. This is a much looser book than any of the other ones I've done. Okay. Now, because you feel that it's looser, did that make you feel as if you had less control over it? Like, my question is, who led you or the poems? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> that's good. Um, the uh, I would say, okay, if you look at and, and some of the poems, like, when I write a poem, I mean, like, first work was uh, presenting my own memories and impressions. Mm-hmm. So I guess in that case, I led the poem. Okay. A lot like the Miles Davis piece in my first book where, you know, if you recall that one. Uh, but in the case of the brief eulogy, that grew out of blending and organizing a collection of images in my journals. Uh, so the poem led me, and, and also, and one of the poems I will read later is called "Playing Ball in the Hereafter." Mm-hmm. Well, that was a direct result of the close timing of the deaths of Hank Aaron and Don Sutton. All right. So it was kind of, oh, what if, you know, what if those two guys were able to meet, you know, in the afterlife and play ball? Uh, so yeah, it's it's, um, it's interesting because yeah, sometimes I lead the poem. <laughs> because it's something I want to get across, but other times the subject just grabs hold and it's like, okay, I got to go wherever this thing leads me. All right. I like that. I like that. Please share some more of your work. Sure. Sure. And, um, well, let me go ahead and uh, I'll go ahead and do the, uh, sorry. Um, I'll start with, uh, one of my favorite earlier poems, actually, this is just showing up in a book form this time, but uh, I wrote this long ago, and I think it'll be pretty obvious who it is. Uh, this is called Kareem. It took 40 years of aging to get you to leave the court, yet rather than older, you are taller, cowering over everyone before and probably everyone who will ever come to play. I was just learning the game when I first heard the name, Lou Alcindor, one of only three who could leap and reach over the top of the boards to touch the back. The other two were Russell and Wilt, and you were still in school. You kept the strength of the big man inside, blocking shots, driving powerful and smooth as a, sol- as a Coltrane solo. Then you changed your name 
after you changed the game forever. From layups to untippable skyhooks, shots leaving the wrist from outside the key in an arc so graceful and perfect they surpassed pyramids, lunar landings, maybe even resurrections. And then the other one I wanted to get into, and well, the next two, actually. This is the sports section, I guess, if there is one. Um, I mentioned this earlier. It's the, the last Brooklyn Dodger. And this is January 9th, 2021. Lasorda's at his heavenly rendezvous, his heart giving its final drop of blue. He became a foul-mouthed savior and then his team's ambassador. Still, before Brooklyn was a borough, the team began by making heroes. When Jackie broke the racial limit, the Dodgers forced all sports to pivot. Then a Moses drove them to exile by denying them space. And meanwhile, as bridegrooms to the Yankees, O'Malley packed up the team to leave. Departing Brooklyn with a series ring, they bid Tommy adio with the same thing. This is one, um, these next two are musical oriented. And uh, the first one is, this is absolutely autobiographical. Uh, this is called Surviving Adagio for Strings. First and only rule, never listen in the dark or while vulnerable for every heartbreak. Every 3 a.m. drunken phone call, every failed relationship that's been boxed up, put on a shelf, will bore its way out of your memory and pierce your tear ducts, especially when enduring that final, single, seemingly never-ending and eternal note. And the next one is, and this here again goes back to what I said before about the famous and the not-so-famous. Mm-hmm. Go from Samuel Barber to somebody <laughs> I've never met and don't know. Right. Uh, but this is called Tenor in the Pipeline. Wearing a ball cap, fleece jacket, and cuffed jeans, the man with a ponytail hunches at one end of a galvanized tube, topped by a half-drunk bottle of beer. Tapping a dirty work boot, he plays his tenor sax, the tune moves through a mile of iron that stretches along a furrow that fades into the distance. A dry moat scooped out for this pipe resting on wooden beams where a bike propped against them waits. Soon enough, this musical tunnel will be put to use. But for now, having dug the man's music, it returns a refrain while hidden hands clap a percussive beat. And that's that. Right. You know, you are an accomplished poet. You're well known. What is one thing that makes your writing unique and different from others? What would that be? Uh, um, I like to think really, and I always say this, and obviously you put it in my bio, I believe as well, yeah, Um when I, when I finally returned to school, and I was almost 40, in fact, I was 40 by the time I got to my major, and I started writing, and, and um, one of the women in my, uh, one of the writing classes I took, 
said, man, you're a blue collar poet, aren't you? Uh, I was like, well, that's been sort of my life up to this point. So it's, you know, they say, write what you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, that's been, and I hope I never lose that attitude. Uh, You know, uh, uh, it's funny too, because I, I also, I don't know. I like to convey other points of view because here again, one of the, uh, once again, going back to my days at the university and, and one of the other people in the class once asked me, I said, well, you know, religion seems to be a big thing with your work. And, and, and that has been pointed out. And it's like, yeah, but I'm, I'm not that religious, but religion in and of itself is a very interesting topic to me. So mm-hmm. it's only natural. It'll be a topic of conversation. You know, the, the, the titles of your poem I found to be quite interesting. So what I'd like you to do for the general audience tonight, please mm-hmm. share the titles of five poems in the book. Okay. So the five poems I chose were Kareem, Fighting Gods in Nature Below the Waterline, First Work, Playing Ball in the Hereafter, which I haven't read yet but will, and finally mm-hmm. Surviving Adagio for Strings. Mm-hmm. Now – some poems seem to label themselves. Kareem, right. for instance, I mean, what else could I call it? Mm-hmm. However, the second title, The Fighting Gods and Nature Below the Waterline, demonstrates a kind of a new thing to my writing, namely, will the title attract interest? And I owe this attitude to a, a man, a gentleman, his last name is Slattery. He's a member of a Saturday Skype workshop I participate in. And one of the first things he always comments is, you know, on anybody's work is he poses the question, if he were to see it in a table of contents, would it draw him into the writing? Mm-hmm. And I think because of his approach to that aspect of writing, I find that now more often than not, I start with a working title, just for the sake of organization, and then mm-hmm. return to consider the title once the poem is a po- you know is polished enough to consider submitting it. Like I say, Fighting Gods and Nature started as simply pit snipes. Uh, you know, since that's what it's about, you know, but then somebody said, well, no, but I think you should make it more encompassing than that. The Surviving Adagio for Strings, originally I had Samuel Barber's name in the title, but a member of the group suggested removing the name since it was interesting enough without it and might insult people who are familiar with the piece. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, the other two, the first work and playing ball in the hereafter, pretty much presented themselves before the writing process even began. The first work, um, I think you might know that Chuck Corpusiero and I work together. He's a musician, I read. and uh, Yes, I do. We, yeah, we, were, we grew up across the street from each other in New York, and we were talking about the old neighborhood. And I told him, I said, yeah, my first job was with Mr. Kunstler. He goes, oh, my God, I remember him. <laughs> And I said, you know, I got to honor this guy because it was my first paying job. I was 14 years old and it was just, it was such a weird experience for a young kid like me to be paired up with this older man who was clearly dying. I mean, you know, he was on his last legs at that point, which is why I, I, you know, I did that. I, I, and actually my dad, I have to say, suggested it. he, I went to him. I said, hey, how can I make a, a larger allowance? He says, well, I, I'm not giving you any more than I'm giving you. But he says, why don't you help the counselors across the street? And I was like, oh, good idea. <laughs> it became my first real job. 
So, yeah, it, it's interesting how the titles will sometimes grow out of the piece, but sometimes, like I say, some of them are just, they're there, you know, no denying. That's the way it's got to be named. All right, all right, all right. You know, I was wondering, you know, I asked you earlier, and we're going to play with this just a little bit, about your work in terms of what makes your work unique, all right? Mm-hmm. The question is kind of a follow-up, kind of a follow-up. Yeah. What do you what do you think makes poets different from other people? I'm keen to know uh, this. Okay, I'm sorry. Let me. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, really, and you know, you you sort of have to go, or I have to sort of have to go back to what started me in poetry was the okay. fact that I was at a journalism convention. I was on my school newspaper, and, and I started as a journalism major out of high school. Of course, that went south pretty quickly when I had too much fun and flunked out. And when I returned, I was thinking, well, maybe I'll look at journalism again. But certainly, I, I hooked up with the school newspaper, um, mm-hmm. also because it offered scholarships. I was like, okay, sounds good to me. Uh, but I went to a, a convention, and, and I'm sure you've heard this story before, but for those who haven't, I, there was a, a workshop on how to improve your writing. And I said, well, that sounds good. And I go in there, and the woman just basically says, look, you want to improve your writing in any medium. It doesn't matter what. Start writing poetry. Because the discipline that's required to write a poem makes you cognizant of every word and every phrase you use. That, that poets are, they're economical, almost to the point of being stingy, I like to say. Uh, uh-huh. You try and pack as much into every word that you possibly can. And I love the discipline that's involved in that kind of thing. Uh, also, the idea of, was it Eliot or Pound said, make it your own, of, yeah. of finding imagery that, that uh, you know, nobody else has thought of. That, that good poets, to me, do not you know, rely on cliches okay. or, or formula. Okay. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things I really appreciate. And I, I do think it carries over into my other writing. When I write short stories, when I'm, you know, I just finished up one memoir, I'm going to work on another one. Oh. I think that has really helped my writing tighten up in other areas. How so? How so? Talk to me. That, uh, once again, trying to find ways of saying it in a fresh way. Uh, okay. Because as you know, and I'm sure you've heard this, there's no such thing as a new idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the challenge, yeah. well, how do you express the old ideas in new ways, or at least in ways that, that identify you with your own particular background, whether it's generational, national, cultural, whatever. Mm-hmm. So. So, yeah, that's what I admire most about having gotten into it. I mean, once I got into it, it was like that. There was no turning back. This is really a a format for me to play with. And I've now moved into trying more formal, you know, classical forms. Okay. Uh, as a way of challenging my – here, again, the, the idea is, all right, I've worked with this free form a lot. Let me see what I can do. Mm-hmm. sticking to the standards of what these other people have set up. Can I do it? Now, has that process been easy to adopt a new way of being? No, that's, that's, that's the fun part of it. It's, it's 
look, you know, here again, getting back, I'm 70 year old, 70 year mm-hmm. old. I, I can't run anymore. So I'm not going to be breaking <laughs> any personal records. Uh, you know, um, a lot of things I can't do anymore. And I was like, well, this lets me stay somewhat active, at least in mind, if not body, uh, in, uh, in keeping things going. And, you know, I, th- I think that's really kind of the trick to age uh, is, you know, okay, you, you know your limitations. Well, what can I move into that I haven't tried before? And, and this has certainly been one of them. Well, I like that philosophy. I just turned 60. Oh, okay. and, I, <laughs> and I still can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, yeah. In the old days, once you hit 60, <laughs> it was well, downhill yeah, from there. <laughs> you know, I, but it's I not like that anymore. That, I, I guess it was when I turned 40. Because mm-hmm. I remember growing up, and of course I grew up in the 50s and early 60s. Once you hit 35, you were pretty much middle-aged. <laughs> well, then I got in my 30s. I guess it was in my 30s, and Bill Cosby had turned 50, and they had a big story about him turning 50. But the headline on the story was, middle-aged and such. I said, well, great. Now 50s middle-aged. So I, you know, I'm never going to be middle-aged because every time I get close to it, they keep pushing it back. So I was, <laughs> I was hoping that would hold. Obviously it's not, but. Well, let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Sure. back. I'm here with one of my favorite poets, Bill Cushing. Please share some more of your work. Oh, okay. Well, let me, uh, where am I here? Sorry. Well, let me go to, uh, this batch here. Um, first one is, uh, called a question of longing. Gone already forever. Well, I wanted forever. Souvenirs and scrapbooks and drawers, bare bones, evidence of failure. Ticket stubs to La Traviata. I wish it had been Wagner. I could have been with you that much longer. Others, one whole, one torn, from the show I saw alone. There's a picture in my wallet. A friend, a woman, told me that being there is really making it. I don't dare remove it. I don't want to see it. I do, actually, but looking at your image, smiling, hair falling over shoulders, holding the sun I never had, won't bring you any nearer nor put you any further. And it's as close as I ever got to you. This one is called Resurrection of Ponce. 
The push of volcanic eruptions created this fabric of rocky land between ocean and the Caribbean. Its people now jarred by shifting plates of earth, being battered after so much damage. First Hugo, then Maria, now Ian. The stress of collapsed buildings rattled the people, broken yet undefeated, who will reach back to their indigenous Taino roots. Ponce, cradle of native art, will rise from rubble, return to Isla del Encanto. And this is um, observations of four modern women. Sheila, riding a bus, her lean body draped on a loose frame, her female figure wrapped in work clothes, feet dappled by a thin dusting of cement on steel-toed boots after her day operating a backhoe. Her hair hides under a red paisley bandana, but for one stray cornrow. Another writer detects the patina of her day's work in the sweat coating her skin. His nostrils flare, hoping to hold her, this child of Ghana. Karin, hair standing at outlandish angles, she tries to achieve the statuesque, and that is precisely what she portrays, a beautiful painted and polished porcelain figure that at the slightest movement, smile or grimace would break and crack, demolished into shards of broken perfection to lay on the ground. Mishkan. Black hair curls flowing over a moon-shaped ivory face smooth as marble, a paragon of Afghani beauty. She is untouchable by virtue of cultural rigor. Melody. She dances smiling, hair bobbing on a head, seemingly unattached, as a spring mounted to her body. At the end, her applause is too long, her shrieks too bawdy, too loud, too alone. Feeding ritual, and uh, I, I do want to give a shout out to uh, a very young woman I know, Mele Condren. She's the daughter of a friend of mine, and she is a young uh, actress, and, and this was based on a movie she was in that this thing came out of. It's called Feeding Ritual. To help him cling to life, she postpones her own. A tube grows from his side, a sapling's trunk that pumps pulpy food into him. She serves this sacrament twice daily, then washes away her tears as she washes out the hose that allows her father to breathe. And finally, mirrored images, and this one is uh, very autobiographical. It's the last image of my sister and mother that I have. And it's called Mirrored Images. Two women sit, threading fingers, intertwining generations. Hands weave like vines of ivy, crawling along an ancient tree. The mother, withered and firm, droops in the chair as she stares. At the other, her eyes vacant, coated by the film of age. The daughter, vibrant, lively, rests soft palms over gnarled skin that sags above bony fingers, knuckles stiffened by arthritis. So now the parent, now docile, becomes nurtured by the child. 
and that's the end of that. Wow. Bill, has a, a poem you've written ever humbled or frightened you? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, mm-hmm. I think probably the, the the one out of this book that I feel the 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 most personally connected to is that first work. Okay. Uh, okay. You know, the memory of Mr. Kunstler. Mm-hmm. I think in the first book it was the one Gabriel's coming about our son who was was born with multiple disabilities and just you know the fact that this was now our reality. Yes, uh, you know, was one that affected me quite a bit. So, yeah, those would be the two uh, that I would pick right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Does it hurt you to write poetry? Why or why not? Um, I think, you know, one of the things I found is that writing, it's become cathartic, if anything. Now, you will go okay. through pain on mm-hmm. the writing, but having come through the writing and, and like I say, the uh, just – talking about uh, the memoir I'm now revamping, the, the one I'm undertaking now, is about my late wife and our dealing with cancer, which she died from very young. And, um, boy, that was a lot of really cheerful nights and drinking a lot of scotch. And, you know, okay. just yeah. Trying to get... yeah, I can understand. But to me, it was part of the grieving process in the end. It, it mm-hmm. brought me through that, I think, better than any group encounter or therapy session ever could. So, I, you know, sometimes it's painful to, to visit some of these things, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think it's good to get it. You know, it, it's therapeutic. It's, it's, you know, and that's certainly I'm not the first one to say that, but, you know, yes. it, it is. I believe it as well. Now, with this particular book, are you hoping the book resonates with a broad range of readers or are you targeting a specific audience? I would have to say, obviously, I want to go to as wide a set of readers as I possibly can. Uh, obviously, it's written from my point of view, so it's, you know, it is mine. It's that of an aging man looking back on life. But I want the poems appreciated. I won't say enjoyed, since mm-hmm. some of these pieces aren't exactly Rod McEwen. Uh, right. But... I, I hope others can per- perceive these, you know, as my perceptions of the world. And I think I'll have succeeded with this book if any reader can come away feeling acquainted with another person's life, whether it's my own or the subjects of the poems. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Rod McEwen, and he brings up another question for me. How important is the accessibility of meaning. In other words, should one employ a lot of mental energy to solve a poem? I think the best poems work on the the most basic to the most difficult level. Um, mm-hmm. I always liked uh, a very good friend of mine uh, who's, I really admire his poetry, uh, Christian Golson. Uh, he once said, I want the cleaning lady to be able to read my stuff and say, yeah, <laughs> right. I can. Mm-hmm. And that's, and it, I, I really enjoyed, I think one of the nicest reviews I got on my first book was, uh, you know, several of my high school classmates bought copies just to kind of help me out and you know, mm-hmm. sell some copies. You know, 
But one of them, I, I love what he said. He says, yeah, you don't need to be an academic to read this guy's stuff. <laughs> and yet I still want that there at, to a certain degree. And I, I do embed certain things that, all right, if you want to go look this stuff up, go ahead. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you can find out about it. But to me, what's more important is that the poems connect with as wide a range of, of people as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh don't write, you know, and it's not that I don't appreciate it. I admire people who can write that very mystical, mythological type of poet, poems. Mm-hmm. That's not my, it just doesn't fit into my personality. I, I, you know, and I guess that goes back to the whole blue collar thing. It's like, I, you know, I want to be able to, to write like a cabbie might write. Which, of course, I wasn't. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> so you want to reach the masses? Oh, I, I absolutely hope so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if somebody goes away with an aha, oh, I got that inside joke, great. But that doesn't have to be – that's not my biggest priority of putting the, like I said, the inside joke or the inside reference in there. If I can, right. and it's there, great. But if I, if I don't, it doesn't bother me. Tell me about a poem that you did not put into the book that you were afraid to potentially put in due to fear of possible misinterpretation. Was there one Mm. like that? Uh, I don't think so. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to look. Because I did do that one. uh, I think I put the prodigal father in here, which is, or maybe not. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to see whether I – there is one uh, that I wrote. No, it isn't here. The Prodigal Father, which is a lot of me, uh, you know, okay. because, of, because of my job when I was working, I was away. You know, I, I had my first marriage kind of fell apart, and I really wasn't there for my son at the time because I was traveling all over the place. And I always felt yes. like, yeah, that was kind of a crummy thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know. It happened, and uh, so I sort of reversed the prodigal son, and I became the prodigal father. Um, but um, at any rate, um, I'm trying to think, you know, because there's some I'm still working on, obviously, but I think I want to get them all out at some point. All so right. I can't think of that's that personally difficult that I can't talk about it. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe mm-hmm. it's not at the age I want it right now. All right. Please share some more from your book. Okay. Let me see. Well, let me go with this. Um, I'll go with this. This is one of the ones that I wrote about somebody famous. Uh, It's called Shaman on Wheels. And it's for John Gardner. And I'm referring to John Gardner, the American, not the British. The British Gardner wrote Mysteries, the... American wrote many other things. But this shaman on wheels. Waking to snow, thick as white paint, freshly applied to the ground but smudged with tire tracks, boot prints that took us to Batavia, as well as other places, Greece, Sweden, Scandia, Vermont. An American mythologist, you could give the beast perspective, show us a laughing philosopher debating Socrates, or document a warrior hunting to kill the devil. 
You are a wild man who proved more moral than any priest, shaman, elder, or cleric. Once I grew my hair long as drapery, spilling over shoulders as yours, but mine was too generic in contrast to your silvery mane, locks reflected in the steel side pipes of the motorcycle you straddled on a mountain in Pennsylvania, the one that you rode into Asgard. Um, this one I really enjoy, and if anybody's seen the picture of that uh, rock formation in Iceland, th that's where this comes from. It's called an elephant in Iceland. Wrinkled layers of water-cooled basalt, which for six months erupted as lava to pour from Hilgefell, the hill of fire. Slumbering on an island that sits and splits itself between the tectonic plates of Eurasia and the Americas. Does the beast that created new land from crushed buildings and ash sleep as it faces seaward? Or is it drinking the waters swirling off the shore, eddying along the home island? Perhaps this igneous pachyderm intends to swim to sea. Uh, another Puerto Rican poem, uh, Las Carabas. Plank by plank, the snowy egret approaches, stalking a crushed milk carton. As a sliver of moon drops, waiting between the fading light of today and the dropping of night's velvet curtain that reveals an array of stars uncensored by the glow of shopping centers. A chorus of Cokies playing percussion ushers in morning. This one is actually a sports poem in a way, but not the athletes so much. This is called Punters at the Track. Dressed in silks, the four horsemen approach the stalls, jogging to their call in steady gait to wait for the crack of the starter's pistol. Then the maelstrom, frenzied heartbeats, quickening blood, pulses and necks outstretched as front runners spray the field with clods of dirt and streaking mud as they round each turn, digging in, running the furlongs. In the stands, betters clench paper dreams, scatter cigar ashes from pumping fists, touting their wagers, playing long odds, trying to even things up. The field finishes in equine sweat, lunging through the, the chute to affirm who's better on the bit. And this last one for this set is... Uh, I always wanted to write about the haka, that uh, that traditional dance or warrior dance, and it really didn't click with me until, uh, well, the title of the poem is Haka. It was written March 2022 to honor your Ukraine. Defeat birthed these primal tribesmen. Harsh turmoil raised them, so they began celebrating life with clenched fists that hammered chests then opened to slap forearms. Blue scars from youth form patterns. Swirls and spirals grow from spacious faces, enlarged by eyes that bulge, by cheeks that widen, by tongues that snake over jutting jaws. The air shimmers from muscular vibrations. They leap and stamp side to side, slap the ground in defiant rage, a sharp dance that displays fury 
for at least one more day. The warriors offer unbroken stares, challenge anyone who dares engage. Take my head, gnaw on my bones, suck the marrow, but never doubt what ferocity will return to you. And that's the end of that. Wow. You know, when I listen to you share your work, I feel like you breathe life into poetry. Now, there are those out there who believe poetry is dying. What do you think about that statement? Is it dying? It, maybe it's dead and we don't know it. I don't know. Um, it's, well, let's be real. It's not the biggest market in the world, but I don't think it will ever die. <laughs> I, I okay. Think it's kind okay. Of, I think it's kind of built into our bones, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because there's a rhythm, there's a meter, there's, you know, there's, there's something going on that's primal in poetry. And I think that's what makes it survive. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm wondering how many times that statement has been said, that, yeah, poetry's dying, what's the point? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it's the first written form that most children get interested in. Mm-hmm. And I kind of stays with us. If anything, I think what might ruin poetry for most people is the academic side, where where we try and infuse so much into it that it, it makes it. I mean, you know, I I'm a big fan of opera. Now, most people look at that and go, "How can you?" It's, it's a great meter for for performance. I mean, you've got you know, you've got the music, you've got the singing, you've got the acting, you've got the story, you've got the set design. I mean, it's a combination of everything. Uh, in fact, I've always said that my favorite musical was Les Mis, mm. and I insisted play an opera. It's not a, it's not a musical. But it's just easier to sell tickets to a musical. So they said, oh, it's a musical. <laughs> uh, but if you've ever seen the show, and, and I'm referring now to the stage performance, and stay away from the movie, sorry. And yeah. So <laughs> but if you ever see it on stage, <clears throat> I mean, there's not a spoken word of dialogue in the whole thing. There is the leap motif. There is the standards of, you know, you have the sopranos, you have the altos, you have the tenors. I mean, it's, it's a standard opera. Uh, and for that reason, I love it. I think it's one of the greatest things ever produced. Maybe. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think that poetry is going to die out just because it's not a bestseller. Okay. I, I think it's still going to survive uh, as long as people want to, you know, express themselves. And you think about it, the slam poetry, which I really have to admit I'm not a part of. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm too I'm too old for that, I guess. And I'm just not. I think you know. I don't feel theatrical enough. Um, but that's been a big revival in the poetry. Yes, it has. Yes, I agree. I, mean, I really very much agree. like the beats were in the fifties. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've spent a lot of time <laughs> discussing age, mm-hmm. being seasoned, yeah. as they say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would it be, my friend? If you could tell your younger writing self anything, mm. what would you tell your younger writing self? Um, well, don't quit now, I guess. Uh, okay. I mean, uh, I I wrote for years, even before I got back to school, I 
was still writing, although it was more just diaries, journals, and that stuff. And, and so I always wrote. It just wasn't with the, the thought of getting published in mind. Now, once I got involved in school and saw that there was a, you know, a, a way to do that, then, yeah, sure, I absolutely followed it. But uh, I don't know. Um, you know, uh, I, I guess one thing you could that younger people, and, and I, I guess I'm talking in general, not just myself, yes. but, uh, you know, uh, don't, don't regret your mistakes. Hmm. Now, that's Those, a huge statement. Tell me more about that one, Bill. Break that well, one in down other words, for the people in the what, back. Break it down. <laughs> yeah, what right. leads you to where you are now? And I look back, and, you know, people always say, you know, well, if you had your life to live over, would you do anything different? And I say, you know, I probably would, but I'm glad I'm not going to get that opportunity because having taken those side roads, making those screw-ups, gave me the experiences that led me to where I am today. So in retrospect, eh, you know, they, they, okay, they were painful at the time and they, they weren't fun or, or whatever, but uh, they certainly paid off in the long run. And, yeah, I, I think a really good example is funny because uh, – when I was at the university, uh, our the university president there president had to step down because of a personal problem he had. And I won't go into the details and stuff. But I remember when you know they were looking for the new president. All the talk was was well, yeah, we got to get somebody who's like absolutely solid background, no flaws. Well, I, said, I don't really know if I want somebody running things that hasn't scraped their knees once in a while. I, you know, I think, you know, what is it? Experiences, you know, the wisdom you get from screwing up, but you got to do the screw up to, to get the wisdom. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, that notion of, you know, don't worry about what you screwed up on just use it to, improve what you're going through now. I don't think you've read my favorite poem from the book. Okay. <laughs> it's the one about the the person being beaten on the playground and there are other people who've gone through the same thing in their lives. You know that particular one? Uh, let's see. I wish I had the book in front of me. Is it the sh well? That's shadows over suns is more about. Let's see. It was just such a powerful message that we go through things in our lives, and they're yeah. not always good. Sometimes there are bullies that causes causes difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> Life itself can be a bully, if you think about it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's you know. Um, what is it? Yeah. Don't worship nature too much. It's trying to kill you. Uh. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you can't find it, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. <laughs> well, speaking of writing this book, my friend, what do you think you learned about yourself from writing this book? Um, I would say that I still got some life left in me. <laughs> like, Having, I think, you know, uh, like I said, that the way this moved so quickly, it really energized me. It's like, oh man, I can still do this. I can put something or put a project together in, in very short order that that hopefully comes out 
you know, well and, and succeed, but at least I'm satisfied with the final result. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, it's kind of been the impetus. Like I say, I, uh, I just finished up the memoir of my time in the Navy and then afterwards on, on other ships. And, uh, that one is right now being read by a couple of people to, you know, take a machete to and cut it down to something reasonable. I'm, I'm going back to the memoir about my late wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm finishing stages of a book of short stories now, which, I'm told should be ready by the end of this month and, you know, hopefully get it out and published by the summer. Okay. So I think having done this is, is like, okay, you know, it's, it's, I'm not working anymore. I'm retired. Even yes, I still teach now and again, but you know, not on a regular basis. So it's been, you know, the first part of retirement was mostly, okay, now I can get back to these projects, but now I'm finding that, yeah, this is great. This is, you know, giving me the impetus to keep going and, and keep trying to write. Um, I, I, I've always admired, uh, I don't know if you know, Henry Roth is, uh, uh, he's the guy who wrote Call It Sleep mm-hmm. and uh, disappeared in the forties from life entirely. And then came back in the nineties and he was in his eighties at that time. And he said, well, I'm back and ready to write again. And he had six novels underway at that time. Now, the, he only lived long enough to produce three of them. And I was like, that's amazing to think. And they were wonderful, just as great as the stuff in the 30s and 40s was. The, the newer stuff was just as good, uh, maybe even better in some ways. Uh, so, uh, and that's, you know, and by the way, that's one of the things, you know, The Last Shaman is about John Gardner. Mm-hmm. I think most writers don't hit their stride till they're in their 50s. And I keep thinking, Gardner died at 49. It's kind of like like to me, Jimmy, just think if he had lived further with what what music he would have produced. That's the same thing with Gardner. I look at his stuff like, oh, my God, the guy was great. And he hadn't even really hit his stride yet to me. Uh, Because to me, most writers... You do need some age to, to really be able to look at yourself objectively and, you know, be able to dredge up some of that stuff you couldn't approach before. I found the poem. Okay. <laughs> I don't think you've read it tonight because I would have, I would have uh, heard these lines. There's one line. It's a prayer to reject sanctuary. Oh, okay. And oh, I thought I did read you you couldn't have because <laughs> maybe I skipped it. But I had. Well, I don't know. But the line there was a good people out there. Every okay. scrape and scar, cut and burn, yeah. ordained me into who I became. That's what I became. What, yeah. Yes, that is just that's just so powerful. It was visceral. I mean, no, it made thanks. me made actually chills when I read that because you're right. Every scar, every scrape, cut, burn, shapes us into who we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's um, you're not going to be perfect anyway, no sense in trying. But also, right. yeah, I think, uh, you know, having done this, done that, it, it taught me a lot. Well, and, and it's sort of like, you know, one of the things that got me back into school was the age. You know, I was 
and past my 30s. I was in my mid-30s when I finally quit and started going mm-hmm. back to school. I actually started at 38, I guess. But it was the realization. I was like, I, I've been doing this work, and I love the work. I, I was an mm-hmm. electrician on ships. I, I absolutely love the work. But then I realized that this is a dangerous job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the longer you're at it, the, the better the odds are something bad's going to happen. And so, and here again, the longer you stay with it, the worse that something is going to be. So maybe it's time to get out and <laughs> look at another career. Uh, so uh, it is funny that, uh, you know, that, you know, a series of accidents that n- not just myself, but other people had, I realized, you know, I, I think it's time for a career change here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're almost at the end of our poetic journey. Yeah. But I would like you, if you don't mind, to read a prayer to reject sanctuary so that the listeners can understand what what I'm talking about. Okay. So let me live alive, unnumbed by the sedative of too much comfort, too much security. Let the pain of age and isolation sharpen my senses, hone my soul into a spear tip of exploration excommunicated from the swaddling of outside help. Keeping children safe presents its own danger. I was battered and bent, dented in a thousand ways. Past damage altered me. Every scrape and scar, each cut or burn, ordained me into the one I became. Wow. So if I can impose on the time, if I have yes, time. Yes, please, please, please. Um, please share some more. Me, you got more? Yes. Zap one more on you, at least. Okay. And it's the final poem, and uh, it uh, – here again, it's one of the famous people that I've always admired. And it's <laughs> called – and there's this. Coming out of Yonkers – Lawrence assumed the throne of a proletarian prince for the beat generation. He ended up in San Francisco by way of Coney Island, a different breed who held court in a citadel, city lights. His passion intensified the element of surprise, inviting a state of being that rivals the unselfconscious. Creating his own kind of koan, he painted life by making the dragon a fly. At 30, I met Ferlinghetti as a man in his 70s. I was pierced by the clarity of his vision, the sapphire eyes that saw into people and bridged the gulf between them to recalibrate the world. Wow. You know, just a little cage of bone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you were to give your readers advice before they read the book, what would it be? Um, hmm. Well, I would say, well, let me say this. The only reason I don't like the question is that it assumes I'm in a position of authority. Okay. And, uh, I'm trying to hard books here. Uh, <laughs> but it's your book. <laughs> however, I hope that some of the pieces here, especially those using names or terminology readers might not know, will interest them enough to learn more about what I reference on those pages. 
That's not action I can demand since it depends on the reader's interest. But my task is to interest them enough to want to learn about those things. Yes, yes. That's, you know, hopefully people will take a look. And and if they see something of interest, they'll dive deeper into the the history behind it Mm -hmm. or, you know, who named or whatever. Well, speaking of that, how can you be reached? Well, uh, I, I think you put my, if not, I, I always welcome putting my uh, my uh, Yahoo email on, which is the Pisces Poet, all one word, uh, mm-hmm. the astrological sign of poet at yahoo.com. Uh, the book is available on Amazon, our, as are the other ones, I believe. I think Music Speaks is a little harder to find now, mm-hmm. but it can be certainly gotten directly from me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the book is on Amazon. Uh, but uh, anybody in the SoCal region, though, I've got several readings coming up. So. All right. I'll so, with books in <laughs> <laughs> so you've talked about a number of projects. I guess I want to know, again, what's next for you creatively, like, in the next month or so? Anything coming up right now? Well, the, like I say, the um, – I have the manuscript being read for revisions. That was a two-year project. uh, uh, I've really returned to the draft of the memoir about my late wife's passing to cancer, and that's titled Counting Down the Breaths, uh, which needs some retooling. And, of course, I'm still knee-deep in writing new poems. So I hope to have another book out at some point, but probably a year or more, I would say, you know, obviously, I'm going to keep sending work out, but as far as putting the volume together, I'm hoping counting down the breaths that I'll be done by February and February. revise. Yeah, uh, that would be a, a reasonable. And the only reason I say that, I, I may be done earlier, but when I was doing the, the book that's now under revision, the, the memoir about my time on ships, I kept saying, well, I'll have it done by this. Time. And then I went, no, i got to add this. And then, well, I'll have it done by then. Nope. It ended up taking me two years to write. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, another four or five months to revise and then start getting it out. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping. But counting down the breaths is pretty much there. I, I just need to revamp it, cut some things, retool it a little bit. So like I say, I'm hoping by the beginning of the year to have that pretty much ready to go. And like I say, in the meantime, of course, I'm still writing poetry. All um, right. <laughs> I try and get at least one every other week out there in the workshop. So. Well, I want to thank you for joining me. You know, I thoroughly enjoy our conversations. I learn so much, and I admire you so much because you were one of the first people to believe in me <laughs> enough to be on my show. I just checked it back in, back in 2018, mm-hmm. September yeah, that would be. And you, this is your fourth time being here now. So, yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that well, makes me feel good. What is it? Bad cold. Just don't go away, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> but, well, I'm always, I, I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm honored that you, you'll give me the time, <clears throat> and I think, you know, 
your voice is a, is a good one to have out there. I mean, you know, uh, remember, I've heard some of your work, too. You've, you've sat mm-hmm. in on some of the reading. That, so, <laughs> uh, you know. Now, also, I also feature on this show short story writers, writers in general. So when you well, the next book is published. Well, that one, come on back. like I say, the woman who's working on it told me the last email I got was last week. She says, hopefully by the end of April, it'll be ready in ebook form. Cyberwit, who did the This Just In book, uh, they're willing mm-hmm. to look at it. I think they'll probably go for it. That one is called The Commies Come to Waterton. Uh, all right, all right. <laughs> which is one of the titles of one of the stories. Of that. And like the poems, it's very autobiographical in many ways. I mean, some of the short stories are pure fiction. Um, mm-hmm. But even the one, for example, one of the stories is called uh, Men of Troy, Hoi Polloi. All right. It's about... <laughs> It's about the Trojan War from the point of view of the grunts, not the generals and the kings and the gods. It's it's about the guys who are actually fighting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so obviously it's somewhat autobiographical because I was enlisted. These guys are well, most of them were drafted. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will certainly remember that. Please, I'll make sure you remember because I'll say, hey, <laughs> I saw your book on a shelf. Well, on Amazon. <laughs> Come on back. All right, this. But thank you, Bill, for sharing your wonderful work. Again, everyone, go out and purchase just a little cage of bone. And I'll throw in at seven bucks, such a deal. <laughs> <laughs> and he will too. <laughs> yeah. All right, everyone. <laughs> thank you for tuning in. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. And as I share with everyone every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everybody. Good night, Bill. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at QLPOR.com